This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 328, The Fall of Mindanao. Last time, General Edward P. King surrendered all the Allied forces on Luzon on April 9th, given the deteriorating military situation. Simply, his men were unable to go on, and the defensive line of Second Corps was no more. In other words, King was making official what had already happened. The Allies had lost the war for Bataan and the Philippines. And yet, Corregidor and the islands to the south were still defiant. While word of the surrender was flying through Allied lines and valuable equipment was being destroyed, one of the last issues General King and his staff discussed before his surrender was the speed of the enemy's advance. Specifically, if General Homa's men got to the top of the Maravellas, they would of course dominate Bataan, but also Corregidor. Yet the question was, could the defending forces in southern Bataan do anything to slow them down? As the answer was no, that seemed to be the last straw on the camel's back, i.e. the surrender. The island that housed Wainwright's command was now on its own. So there sat Corregidor at the entrance of Manila Bay, one of the finest natural harbors in the world. Yet it was not open for business to the Japanese, not quite yet. The Americans had enough large guns on Corregidor, some 45 coastal guns and mortars in all, to make it chancy at best for an enemy ship to sail past, making for Manila or the nearby port facilities at Cafite. And there were three other smaller islands just south of Corregidor that the Allies had guns on as well. Caballo Island, which housed Fort Hughes with 17 guns, El Frale, which had Fort Drum, 11 guns, and Carabao, 21 guns, upon which sat Fort Frank. No matter, Tokyo wanted Corregidor taken, thus Homa had his marching orders. That was the bad news. The even worse news was that the people on Corregidor were used to having drinking water shipped in every day from Bataan. Now they would have to rely on their relatively few wells to sustain them. Further, the food they had 
had to be kept preserved within cold storage plants. Thus, all human life now relied on electricity that came from the island's power plant. Thus, for all of Corregidor's strengths, it had more than one Achilles heel. Corregidor first heard of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor at 3.40 a.m. December 8th, local time. Right away, General Sutherland, MacArthur's chief of staff, sent out a warning to the other three islands, we are at war, though the official communique came through a few hours later at 6.20 a.m. But Corregidor was not bombed that day, or the next, nor for several more weeks. The first air raid over the island, which served as America's Far East Command, came on December 29th at 11.54 a.m. The attacker's plan was to hit the island hard, with the bombers from Lieutenant General Hideyoshi's Obata's 5th Army Air Group. When this was done, then the Navy Air Arm would take over, specifically the 11th Air Fleet. This first attack by the two groups of planes would hopefully destroy the facilities of MacArthur's command. As such, on December 29th, 40 bombers, escorted by 19 fighters, this turned out to be overkill, came at Corregidor at 15,000 feet in a tight V formation. From there, the aircraft broke into smaller groups and took turns flying the length of the tadpole-shaped island, putting down bombs and bullets where they seemed to best serve. After the Army dropped their 225 or 550-pound bombs, the Navy came in with their 60 planes and smaller bombs, but also their dive bombers, who let loose at 3,000 feet. They were better able to target the buildings and installations on the island above ground. As for the three smaller islands, the forts there responded well to being attacked, throwing up 1,200 rounds of 3-inch ammunition. By the time the attackers left, at least 13 of their bombers were either damaged or taken down. Also, the 50 caliber machine guns of the anti-aircraft units downed four Navy planes. The air attacks continued intermittently for the next week, but as the defenders were getting much practice, ever more Japanese pilots paid for their sorties with their lives. The attackers compensated by bringing in more planes, but staying higher up. Thus, safer from the guns below, Corregidor was practically carpet-bombed during the second week of January. As one colonel put it, almost every piece of the surface of the island was a scene of destruction. The Japanese would not bomb Corregidor again until April, whether that was from focusing on southern Bataan or because of the Allied response is still up for debate. The Americans, at least early on, claimed the latter. Unfortunately, as the defenders on Corregidor had not suffered regular air raids when the Japanese returned in April, the men's response could have been more robust. But when the vacated station hospital was hit, the men became more familiar with the term alacrity. Equally so, the headquarters of the USAFFE, or United States Army Forces in the Far East, quickly moved themselves into the Malinta Tunnel the very next day. After all, the day of the April attack claimed 20 killed and 80 wounded, besides damaging two gun batteries and some of the planes and boats on the narrow eastern end of Corregidor. 
To be sure, there were other air attacks over Corregidor between the end of December and April, but as the Allies moved all of their operations underground, the damage topside, and it was considerable, affected the defenders less and less each day. Truth be told, by mid-January, most, if not all, of the structures above the ground on the island were destroyed. But again, the good news was that most of the air raids pretty much stopped after the Bataan campaign got underway on January 6th. Though General Homa had to turn over his 5th Air Group so it could go to Thailand and fight the enemy there, he had already set plans into motion to compensate for this. Almost due east of the southern tip of Bataan is the Cavite province, and being along the coast, southwest of Manila, it was the main goal of the Japanese Navy. To have access to it was to be able to project military power miles away in all directions. Of course, the American naval facilities there had already been destroyed, but now that it was under Japanese control, it was only a matter of time before it was usable again. And yet, because the defenders controlled Corregidor and the three smaller islands, Cavite was mostly inaccessible. No, Homa and the Imperial Japanese Navy needed this war wrapped up. Hence, back in January, he ordered heavy artillery to Cavite and the southern shore of Manila Bay. This way, the various holdout islands would now be within attack range. And receiving this order, Major Toshinori Kondo, who led the Kondo detachment, had four 105mm guns and two 150mm cannons. By early February, Kondo told General Homa he and his were ready. At 8 a.m. on February 5th, the Kondo detachment opened up on Fort Drum on Il Fraley Island which was really a concrete structure atop a small island. As they were attacking in the morning, the Japanese had the sun to their back, the defenders in their eyes. Still, they returned fire with their 14- and 6-inch guns. But whereas the Japanese hit their target island about 100 times in a 3-hour period, the Allied guns scored no direct hits, and this duel between their artilleries would go on for two months. In mid-March, the Kondo detachment was replaced by the 1st Heavy Artillery Regiment of Colonel Masayoshi Hayakawa. This guaranteed that the teeth of the men on the four islands would shake even more until the end of the war. The defenders on the islands noticed this change on March 15th because at 7.30 a.m., all of the guns around Manila Bay opened up against these defenses. Fort Frank on Carabao, the southernmost island, was hit 500 times, Fort Drum 100 times, and this attack would go on for days. On March 16th, a 240mm shell drilled through 18 inches of concrete at Fort Frank and exploded near enough the powder room for all the mortar power inside of it to be lost. But it was much worse for Fort Frank on March 21st when another 240mm shell was able to get through that 18-inch concrete roof to detonate near a line of men who were waiting in line for their yellow fever shots. 28 men were killed, another 46 wounded. 
As the four islands were shelled, the commander on each island kept some of his men stationed along the beaches, just in case the enemy used this diversion of the explosions to land troops. This was dangerous for those men to be thus exposed, but if the enemy landed on any island, it would be over for that base. And indeed, General Homa did make plans to land men at both Forts Frank and Drum, but at the last minute, he decided it was better to concentrate his men for his main attack on Bataan. The islands could wait. They weren't going anywhere. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Not that everything went General Homa's way. Back on February 9th, as the Japanese artillery was still building up, it was deemed worth it by the defenders to risk sending up a reconnaissance flight to take pictures of the Japanese gun positions. The artillery units on the four defending islands were doing respectively well in terms of surviving the assault and firing back, but their aim could have been better. Hence, Captain Jesus A. Villamore jumped into one of the last reconnaissance planes and, escorted by six P-40 fighters, went up to take pictures of the enemy artillery. The information was gathered, and soon the planes were on their way back to Corregidor. But suddenly, six enemy fighters were on their tail. The American pilots broke formation and went after the pursuers, giving the reconnaissance plane enough time to get back safely. What could have easily been a suicide mission quickly became a local victory as the Allied pilots shot down four enemy fighters and damaged the other two. As for the Americans, only one P-40 was lost. The defenders' artillery accuracy improved after the photos were examined. For the first three months of 1942, life on Corregidor, like on Bataan, was pure hell. For those within the various underground networks, due to their responsibility or position, yes, they were safer than those above ground, but they suffered too, being underground for many hours each day for weeks on end. First, there was the more passive victims of tunnel-itis, as it was being called. A furtive manner from all the falling bombs, a sallow complexion from a lack of sunlight, and both of these symptoms helped cover up or at least alter the appearance of being shell-shocked. That was there as well, but mixed in with the idea that at any moment, the tunnel ceiling above one could come down. And now General Homa was ready to go after 
the Allied throat, that is, the command structure on Corregidor. Starting on March 24th, knowing the big push was coming soon on Bataan, Homa wanted a practically continuous attack on the islands, artillery, and bombers. First, any connection, namely ships that were going between Corregidor and Bataan, had to be sunk. Next, the landing facilities on both ends of Wainwright's Island were to be destroyed. This extensive bombing was to be applied to all four islands. After isolating each one, they were simply to be bombed until all on them were dead or surrendered. So, starting on March 24th, first the army bombers came with their 550 or 1,100 pound bombs. Then the Navy came in, and in between the bombings, the artillery took over. The defenders on the island were to have no rest until they gave up. Very quickly, the men on the islands figured out how effective sandbags were at protecting them from the blasts, to which an officer observed, it used to be hard to get the men to fill sandbags. Now, it is hard to keep them from laying hands on all the sandbags available and filling them when those to whom they are allotted aren't looking. When April came, the bombing of the four islands in Manila Bay came to a stop. The quiet was appreciated and then taken as an eerie indication that something was about to happen. Instinctively, all eyes on the three smaller islands turned to Corregidor, and the eyes there turned to Southern Bataan. Sure enough, when Homa launched his massive, augmented attack, Corregidor was given a reprieve. Still, they knew their time was coming. Which brings us back to the surrender of General King, the Luzon Force Commander. The day after he gave up the struggle for Bataan, General Homa sent troops to Mindanao, the southernmost island and second largest, next to Luzon. As may be recalled, Homa had sent a small number of men to Mindanao in late December, to Davao, on the island's southeast coast. The port city there fell, but there were not enough Japanese troops to take the whole of the island. Standing in the attacker's way was Brigadier General William F. Sharp and his Filipino troops. Looking at a photo of Sharp before the war came to an end, one can see that his face was as angular or sharp as his name. All told, Sharp and his were expected to defend the islands between Mindanao in the south up to Luzon, i.e. the Vizion group. The most important islands of this group were Cebu, Panay, Negros, Leyte, and Samar. General Sharp, based on Cebu, unfortunately, was down from five divisions to three as the 71st and 91st had been transferred to Luzon, though the addition made little difference in the end there. But if anyone was expecting Sharp and his men to turn the tide of war, it certainly was not Sharp himself, nor Wainwright, nor King, nor MacArthur. For Sharp's men did not have enough of anything, guns, ammunition, helmets, food, nor anti-tank guns, grenades, or gas masks, should the enemy try something along those lines. The only good news facing General Sharp, and this is only from a certain point of view, is that he had, for all of his islands, five old two-inch mountain guns. Now, Sharp and his staff knew they could not win. Hell, they couldn't even hold out. 
but as that was the lesser of two evils, that was the plan. Hence, Sharp ordered all troops to move inland and become guerrilla fighters. Yes, the Japanese had all but one, but there was no reason not to make them pay a high price to stay in control of the Philippines. As each of Sharp's islands was basically a central mountain area and plains along the coast and then a beach, the idea was to let the enemy land, they couldn't be stopped anyways, and then harass or pick them off as they came inland. Again, the best that could be done with what the Allies had left. But then MacArthur made Sharp's life harder and easier. Back in December, when the general moved to Bataan, he told Sharp his Vizian Mindanao force would not be receiving help or supplies, that it was best for Sharp to move the bulk of what he had to Mindanao, the largest of his islands. This left the other islands with even fewer men to defend them. There would be other administrative changes to the southern force, but by March 4th, General Homa had his various detachments ready to take control there. But as we have seen, the second battle for Bataan did not get underway until April. Hence, the local commanders of the islands were given more time to build up their tank obstacles, trenches, hang wire, and put demolitions in places to hopefully maximize damage to the enemy. And even if all this did not work out, and no one expected it would, supplies were to be hidden in hard-to-reach places all along the islands. If the men were forced to become guerrillas, they would at least have some supplies to start out with. Unfortunately for these defenders, General Homa wisely ordered numerous flyovers, hence the attackers, before they came, knew roughly how many defenders were on each island. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first island to fall was Cebu. In the afternoon of April 9th, watchers spotted three enemy cruisers and 11 transports. On board those were 4,852 highly trained and battle-tested men, led by General Kawaguchi. As these men had fought in Malaya and Borneo, the contest for this island should not take long. And it did not. As stated, the Japanese convoy came at Cebu, on April 9th. That night, it split into two groups, one heading for the east coast to reach the capital city, Cebu City, and the other went around to the west coast, near Toledo. Shielding the capital were 1,100 police officers in the island's military police. The plan in place was for these men to fight the enemy long enough to destroy the nearby bridges. Then all were expected to head for the hills and fight as guerrillas. The Japanese came ashore and pushed their way to the capital's edges, but then stopped to rest. The Allied defensive plan was working, so far. As for the battle on the west coast, the attackers came ashore and with their superiority in men and weapons, pushed back the men of the Philippine Army Battalion in front of them, though the latter 
gave a good account of themselves. But then some of these invaders from the west coast pushed in even further, reaching Cantabaco, roughly equally distant between Toledo and the capital. Hence, the island was cut in half. Those same Japanese troops kept going. No one was there to stop them, and soon they were just south of the capital, having cut right across the island. The roads just south of Cebu City were the main thoroughfares of the island, and thus one of the Japanese main targets. Now that they controlled them, General Chenoweth and about 200 of his men went into the mountains on the night of April 12th. Any organized resistance was over. On the island of Panay, to the northwest of Cebu, which itself is in the center of the southern islands, the Japanese landed men there on April 16th. In three separate landings scattered throughout the island, 4,160 seasoned Hohei soldiers were disembarked. None of these landings were challenged. Within days, the capital city, along with the other major cities, were captured, as were the important roads. However, in the jungle sat Colonel Christie, General Chenoweth's chief of staff, with his roughly 7,000 men. Unlike Bataan or most of the other islands, preparation and time gained with the drawn-out Battle of Bataan gave Christie and his men the time they needed to build a solid foundation for resistance. Within the jungle-covered mountains of Panay, the Allies had stashed cattle, 15,000 bags of rice, tons of canned goods, and fuel. Moreover, though southern Bataan had been stripped of its carabao by the defenders seeking food, Panay had plenty of wildlife and fresh water was accessible. Hence, if the Japanese wanted Christie and company wiped out, they would have to come in and do it themselves. So, an attack force was sent out from San Jose in the southwest corner of the island. Christie had already been sending out hit-and-run raids, so for the Japanese, this was payback. But as the locals had already worked out a spy network with Christie, he knew what was coming and was prepared. Along the path being used by the Japanese, an ambush was set up. Though the defenders only had bows and arrows, spears and bolos, they were excellent marksmen. The first wave of arrows took out many of the enemy troops, and the survivors ran all the way back to San Jose. Still, none of this could change the fact that the Japanese now controlled the main cities and roads, and thus the island of Panay itself. As for the other islands, they would fall in time, being so cut off from the outside world, which left the largest island, Mindanao. As previously stated, two Japanese forces were landed on Mindanao back on December 20th, yet the Sakaguchi Detachment soon left for Jolo Island and the Netherland Indies. This left Lieutenant Colonel Toshio Mura and the 1st Battalion, 33rd Infantry Regiment. Knowing his superiors valued aggressiveness, Toshio had tried to take the rest of the island, but he had too few men and was pushed back each time. Indeed, if not for superior weaponry and air cover, Toshio and his men might have been pushed into the Davo Gulf. But that did not happen, and now reinforcements were arriving. Remember, as General Sharp had arrived on Mindanao in early January, he got right to work organizing defenses and bringing men over from some of the other islands. 
and the more time he had, the more he organized his island defenses. Sharp himself was in the jungle, not far from the Del Monte airfield along the central northern coast. Alas, though Sharp had months to train his men, as they were low on ammunition, that part of their training had to be simulated. Many of the men who fired their guns for the first time with live ammo did so only when engaging the enemy. Countering this defense was the Japanese plan of attack, and considering they had the resources, it would be a rather straightforward approach. As the Mura detachment was already on the island at Davo, three other detachments would reach land in three different places, and they would all head inland to surround and then destroy the defenders if they did not give up first. Due west of Davo City was Kotabato City along the west coast of that part of the island. The Kamaguchi detachment landed there with no problem, but then was held up by the 2nd Battalion, 104th Infantry Regiment. That's when the attackers' planes came in to rough up the defenders. The 2nd Battalion, Philippine Army, pulled back, but they had always intended to. The next part of their plan was to pull out of the city and hold the line in the jungle on the city's edge. However, another Japanese force landed just north of Katabato and started coming down the road. This put the 2nd Battalion in an untenable position, thus they pulled back even further, deeper into the jungle. But further ruining the defenders' plan to trade space for time, as Mindanao was a large island, it also had several large rivers, so the attackers loaded up men on barges and used the Mindanao River near Katabato to travel faster inland than the defenders could move. Thus, their plan was falling apart. Indeed, as the Japanese forces met in the middle of the southern half of the island, that part was lost to Sharp and his defenders. But each time the attackers committed themselves to battle, even after an artillery barrage and air attack, the Filipinos held the enemy back, though losing men each time. Which is when the Japanese used the size of Mindanao to their advantage. Each time they were held up, and these moments were quite a few, they would send men around the defenders' flanks, forcing them back, or else they would have to defend themselves from multiple attack angles. Their only option was to pull back again and again. As the days went by, the Japanese compensated by bringing more men to the island. By May 3rd, the defenders spent practically all their time retreating from the enemy to build new defenses, only to have the swift-moving Japanese show up. So, the construction was abandoned and replaced by shooting and then another retreat. Indeed, by early May, General Sharp was told enemy troops were coming closer to his headquarters. What gave the attackers the advantage of numbers was that the 10th Independent Garrison Unit was taken to Cebu and Panay and told to hold those islands. Now, those troops there were free to come to Mindanao. The last of these would land on Mindanao in late April. What was left of the garrison unit was sent to Davao on Mindanao to take over there as well. Now, at least three full-strength detachments were on Mindanao, splitting up, securing roads and port cities, only to send sections of themselves inland to meet up to finish off the defenders. 
But going back a few days above Cotabato, on the west coast of the main part of the island, Colonel Eugene H. Mitchell and his men, the 61st Infantry Regiment, Philippine Army, was trying to guard Malabang. As Mitchell had the 81st Field Artillery Unit with their two-inch mountain guns, the best that they could hope for was to force the enemy to bunch up or stay out in the open where they could be shelled. But instead of driving right for Mitchell's line, General Kawaguchi loaded his men back aboard his transports and sailed a few miles to the south. Having the room and distance to safely unload his men, Kawaguchi got his men into line and started marching north. As the sun rose on April 30th, the two sides, the men of Kawaguchi and Mitchell, clashed. The Japanese were sure of a victory. The Filipinos, desperate to hold the line, and did so for a few hours. But then Mitchell's left flank began to waver. He threw in his reserves, but the left flank could not be stabilized. Now desperate himself, at 2 p.m., Mitchell ordered his right flank to go on the offensive, hoping this would relieve the pressure on his left. His men on the right managed to push themselves forward, but it did little to help the left, as more Japanese soldiers were offloaded and joined the fray. Mitchell attempted to retake the initiative by throwing all of his men at the enemy during one of their lulls as they were reconstituting their lines. But not everyone got the order to move out. Thus, his thrust was lukewarm. By 8 p.m., Mitchell was forced to fall back again. The next day, Mitchell and company were attacked again at 7.30 a.m. Mitchell was still eager to give battle, but the Japanese had shaken the resolve of some of his men. Again, one of his flanks gave away. Again, the defenders had to pull back. Considering the Japanese had a favorite move of outflanking their opponents to not only destroy the enemy's cohesion, but if possible, capture the commander of their opponent, for nothing brings troops to a stop faster than knowing that their leader has been captured, that Mitchell was able to escape twice from these attempts while getting his men out in good order is rather impressive. But here, the third time, was not the charm. His second escape saw his men become scattered, and many were lost to the enemy. Further, as this retreat went back for five miles, when Mitchell's men were regrouped, not only were some missing, but the enemy was right on their tail. Still, the fighting went on well past sunset. By 11 p.m., Mitchell's defensive line was gone, scattered to the winds. However, the problem for the Japanese was that they could not say for sure if the enemy had been beaten or had just retreated again. The truth was that the men were hiding as best they could. Not giving up, Mitchell grabbed about 30 men he came across and pulled them back. Luckily, he then ran into 60 men of the 81st Division. He ordered these men to set up a new line. But that's when the enemy burst upon the scene in their trucks and jeeps. And being in motorized transports, they were too fast for Mitchell this time. He and many of the men were rounded up. Now there was only one defending unit between Kabaguchi and his desire to drive north and capture General Sharp, and that was Lieutenant Colonel Robert H. Vesey and his 73rd Infantry Regiment, Philippine Army. 
Vesey and his men were to the southwest of Sharp, near Ganesi, right next to Lake Lano. But as the main road, Route 1, that Kawaguchi needed went that way, Vesey and his men would have to be dealt with. Vesey did everything he could to prepare for the coming battle. His men were put in a line that ran from Lake Lano to the northwest, and this covered Route 1 as well. The bridge nearby was blown, and a single two-inch mountain gun protected the two battalions of the 73rd Infantry Regiment, and those still alive and uncaptured of the 61st Infantry Regiment. At sunrise on May 3rd, the Kawaguchi Detachment, with their light tanks in the lead, approached the spot of the destroyed bridge. Seeing that the waterway was not that mighty, a light tank moved out to see if it could cross over. At that moment, a shell from the mountain gun came down and made sure that tank would not be moving again. As the other tanks did not advance, the men were ordered out of their trucks to line up. But that's when the Filipino troops opened up with their guns. They may not have been great marksmen, not being able to practice with live ammo, but they weren't that far away either. Many Japanese troops started falling to the ground. Still, they rushed forward, now supported by artillery and a single plane. But the Filipinos would not give ground. So, the attackers sent men around one of their flanks, which caused Colonel Vesey to order a retreat. In fact, that retreat would be the first of many that day. When darkness came, Vesey and his men were just north of Lake Lano, up in the hills. Not that the Japanese cared. Route 1, going to the northeast, reaching the city of Cagayan and the Del Monte airfield, and General Sharp, was open once again. As the sun rose on May 3rd, southern and western Mindanao was under Japanese control. Even better, now the third of the detachments, led by General Kawamura, would come ashore. It was assumed along Makajalar Bay, just west of Del Monte Airfield, and of course, General Sharp. If the defender's guess was correct, this would put Kawamua and his men just west or to the left of Sharp's line, which stretched from Cagayan River in the center of the city of Cayagan, going to the northeast to Tagaloan. Besides shielding the airfield, this protected the Sayer Highway, which runs south, dividing the island in half, and reaches a point just west of Davao City itself. Hence, as a major roadway, both sides wanted to control it. Of course, the Japanese controlled most of it already. They just needed the northern half to claim it all. In the afternoon of May 2nd, General Sharp was told that enemy ships were spotted in Makahalar Bay. But if the defenders thought the attack upon them would be straightforward, they were wrong. For Karamura had more men and controlled the bay, he could land anywhere he wanted. Thus, his forces were split to land at either side of Sharp's line along the bay. The Japanese troops that landed more to the east, between Tagaloan and the Sayer Highway, had the support of destroyers. Hence, by the morning of May 3rd, they had a firm beachhead. As this was inside the defensive line, the defending troops there were put on notice. The Japanese forces that landed to the west of Cagayan were straightaway attacked by Major Webb and his two companies. At first, the defenders did well, having the element of surprise. 
but as the moments went by, the Japanese became more organized and thus were able to focus their return fire. Before the sun rose on May 3rd, the defenders were falling back. Meanwhile, General Sharp was focused on making sure no enemy troops were able to travel down the Sayre Highway. Taking the last of his reserves, this was, after all, the only part of the island he still controlled. A defensive line was set up near the highway, about four miles south of the beach, near a crater. There stood Major Paul D. Phillips, his three two-inch guns, and what was left of the Mindanao force. But the good news was that two other regiments were just south of Phillips, along the highway, and they had been ordered to rush north and help him. As things stood, General Sharp believed he had the Karamura detachment bottled up. And yet, before Phillips' reinforcements could arrive, the Japanese troops closest to the Sayre Highway had left the beach and started coming down the road. Thus, Phillips and company were forced back. General Sharp tried to counter this by having two towns along the highway held by his troops. This is about six miles away from the coast, near the town of Takulan. As the road there splits, if the defenders could hold these two towns, then access to the rest of the Sayer Road would be cut off. However, the Japanese, specifically Karamura, reacted to this latest defensive pullback in an uncharacteristically unaggressive way. Taking a few days to bring more men forward, reconnaissing the area and the Allies' movement with his planes, while harassing them with his artillery, the main assault on these new Allied lines did not start until May 6th. On that day, Takulon, modern-day Manolo Fortich, was taken. This is where the Sayer Road bends to the east. Though the defenders were retreating in small steps, Kawamura used this against them by having his larger guns fire on the enemy, though his guns were out of the range of the smaller defenders' guns. Thus, the Filipino troops were driven back. And perhaps as no more reinforcements were coming, Kawamura also spent the next few days building up his forces, only then to smash into the enemy versus charging pell-mell with what he had, hoping his men's prowess would carry the day. And Karamura's next step was also unconventional in terms of how the empire normally fought. As the defenders before him were split, covering both roads, Karamura pinned down half of them who were near Putien, while destroying and scattering the other half that was now pushed out of Takulan. By the end of May 9th, the Takulun part of the defenders was no more. This left only Colonel Dalton and his two regiments near Putien. However, their position was equally untenable, as they had no support. The remaining island defenders, those still alive and unwounded, were scattered to Helen back. Thus, General Sharp's command had been obliterated. The Japanese now controlled Mindanao. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. 
So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.